welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Normally, Allie and I would be hanging out, just the two of us, with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk about, or talk to people who are writing about history. <laughs> Today, we have a very special guest here with us, Elizabeth Block. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Elizabeth is an art historian and senior editor in the publication editorial department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. She's here to talk to us about her new book, Dressing Up, The Women Who Influenced French Fashion. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am a senior editor here at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I have Central Park right out my right outside my window, which, you know, never gets old, I, I must say. <laughs> Um, and I've been a book editor here and a journal editor here for a number of years and live uh, nearby as well and went to graduate school very close by. And that's sort of, you know, how it all unfolded. Oh, that's great. I feel like you're living like every leading lady in a rom-com's like lifestyle. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very magical. Like, <laughs> non-profity, but also like very on the edge of Central Park, which it's true. It's hard to compare to that. Actually, yesterday they were recording, they were shooting Gossip Girl outside on the steps. Oh my gosh. Mat. And I think it's like the second generation of the TV show or something. Mm-hmm. So I had no idea who the characters were, but it was a whole scene. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Super jealous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into your book, we have to get into this cocktail we made for it. Um, So we're thinking about like, this is about fashion and women and architecture too, because there's a lot of really cool things about architecture and mansions and the Vanderbilts and all that. So I wanted to create a cocktail that was interesting to look at as well as delicious. Brilliant. (laughs) So this is gin, champagne, grenadine that you kind of float to the bottom but then you also have some cocktail caviar in there so it has all these little bubbles in there amazing (laughs) so cheers to you and your book (laughs) that is unbelievable it's beautiful and I love how it's reddish which kind of like a berry color which matches the house of worth dress on the cover from 1898 yeah, we had to, uh, we knew we were going to take a picture of the cocktail with the book. So we were like, we oh. have to have it be matchy matchy. Mm-hmm. It's so great. And when I had the, uh, when I had the book party, when the book first came out, I found a sweater that matched the front too. So I can, I'm just envisioning a, a portrait with the drink, yeah. the sweater <laughs> and the book cover. I love that. So clever, you guys. <laughs> so let's dive into this book. And I think first let's set the scene for everybody when we talk about the gilded era, like, what is that like? What does that look like in terms of clothing and building and lifestyle? So this is the era of Carolyn Astor and Alva Vanderbilt, who were just, you know, living the top 1% life that you could have in New York, and really all of the major cities in the United States, which is what I try to cover in the book. I try to make sure that we're not just talking about New York because it's true. There were wealthy women throughout the country who were buying fashion, going to Paris, spending upward of $4,000 on one garment, which would be the equivalent of $40,000 today. Um, And then as far as architecture goes, like it's just picture Fifth Avenue, picture Madison Avenue, if you can, or, you know, the mile in Chicago, 
mansion upon mansion. We're so lucky some of them still exist today. Actually, the Ukrainian Institute, which is just down the street from where I sit at the moment, is a former Gilded Age mansion that still exists. So we're so lucky that several of them were not, you know, raised um, during the before the period of restoration, but huge mansions, tapestries on all the walls, chandeliers, parties all night, dinner served at 2 a.m., you name it. Mm. So we're talking a lot about like the clothes and your book has just these amazing pictures of not only like pictures from the era of women in the clothes, but just like photographs now of the, the dresses and everything. So I would love to know, how are these women getting these fashions? Are they going to Paris? Are they sending people there to bring stuff back? What exactly is the uh, through line between Paris and Gilded Age? We're going to say East Coast. <laughs> sure. So they did. You're spot on with your question. These women went to Paris, some of them twice a year. So, you know, you've got to have the fall fashions, you've got to have the spring fashions, and you have to have the latest. So they would go to Paris, say Caroline Astor is a really great example, because she just was the head of society in New York. And she knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted dresses from the House of Worth. She wanted house, um, the Maison Felix. She wanted Jacques Doucet. And she kept an apartment in Paris that she would go to for three months. And she would entertain there. She would hold salons. And she would go shopping. And if you're in Paris for three months, you have plenty of time to wait for couture dresses to be finished. So she would go and she would have them made custom made, of course. And then she would carry them home in trunks. Um, well, she wouldn't carry them home. Her staff <laughs> would carry them home on the steamship. And then she would have them for the New York season. There were other women who would travel from Cincinnati or Chicago or Philadelphia or Baltimore and go um, the same way Caroline did. They may not have owned an apartment, but they may have rented one or stayed in a really swanky hotel, of which there were many in this era. Mm. So in terms of impact, that's what I kept seeing um, throughout your book, how these wealthy American women were impacting France and then how this Parisian fashion world is impacting America. What is happening with those two? It's very much a two-way street. And I'm so glad you picked up on that salient point from the book is that what I'm trying to show is that the fashion industry was never just one male genius leading a house. It was never just Charles Frederick Worth or Emile Poussinot who was running the Maison Philippe. I mean, it couldn't have been. They were serving hundreds of customers from all over the world, and especially from the United States, where these women had so much money to spend that they were the number one clients. But it was never just a man in charge of a house. It was maybe they put their name on it, but there were always hundreds of women, seamstresses who needed to make the dress, designers, live models. Very famously, uh, Emile Poussinot's wife was a live model in the salon. So she would walk around the Maison Felice and show what the dresses looked like on a, on a female body. So it was very much um, the story of not just the producing end, but also the consuming end. And that's the angle that I'm going for in the book. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering too, so now we kind of live in this era where like everyone kind of sees the high-end fashion shows and we understand that eventually those kind of trickle down into things that you may see at, you know, JCPenney or Target even or whatever. So was something like that happening too? Were these women bringing back French fashions and then eventually maybe women who couldn't afford to go to Paris are kind of designing off of those? Oh, yes, there was definitely a trickle down effect. And it was led by, you know, who I call these tastemakers, these um, women of the big, you know, the big 
families and the millionaires, millionaires at the moment. Um, but yeah, they were they during these trips to Paris, they would see the fashions that the houses were proposing. And then the women very much were involved in the design process. So I looked at tons of letters. Um, diaries, journal entries that would say um, invoices where the women were contributing to the design decisions. And they would say, no, I don't want feathers on the collar. You know, I want, um, I want pearls there instead, or I want rhinestones there instead. And they were sort of feeding this design process and the houses needed to listen to them because they had the spending power. But as far as the trickle down effect, yes. So the women were uh, impacting the actual designs that were coming out. And then when sort of the middle class would see images of the high-end women wearing the dresses, they would say, I want that too. And they might sew it themselves. They might copy the pattern or they might, um, they might go to a department store that had a knockoff, which very much happened then as it happens now. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of interested in the, the more of the economic side of this. How are like tariffs and bringing things overseas being, you know, impacting the fashion world. And then even in New York, as we're saying with the trickle down with these high-end stores versus like department stores. Right. I have a chapter in the book on tariffs and I thought, uh-oh, this is going to throw off the <laughs> the general reader. Like, is my mom really going to want to read this chapter? But then it became fascinating when I stumbled on all these stories about smuggling. So there, there were these periods of all these different tariffs that would come in in the United States that were these protectionist me- measures where the U.S. Congress people wanted to protect U.S. industry and they wanted you to buy your dresses and your garments and your all your bits of clothing by U.S. makers. But these women were not stopped. They wanted the latest from Paris. So they went anyway. And there were many instances where they tried to duck through customs and hide new purchases so that they wouldn't have to pay hundreds of dollars. And again, Caroline Astor, she bought five dresses from the house of Felix, and she refused to pay the $300 um, taxes on them, which, you know, would have been several thousand dollars to us today, which she very well could afford, Mm -hmm. refused to do so, and the dresses went to auction. The customs house said, you can't keep these. These are new garments. You need to pay the taxes. She said, no, I refuse. And so they took them and they went to auction. And who bought them? But Bloomingdale's. The department store bought them and put them on display in their window saying, look what we have, (laughs) even though they only had one of each. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. (laughs) Now, there's kind of a thing where I know I've experienced an Allie's experience where like, you know, you buy a new dress for a wedding or something and you wear it and then you kind of feel like you can't wear it again. Were these women wearing these dresses over and over again, or would they wear a different dress for every single occasion? They very much rewore their purchases. And I think a lot of that speaks to how well they knew the fabrics. Um, You know, women in this period, if you think to the 19th century, girls were learning how to sew, you know, maybe from age six and seven to sew, how to knit, how to mend socks, how to mend clothing. And so they really had the skills, the hand, you know, that the handwork skills, and they knew the fabrics really well. So as they went through life, they really appreciated high-end fabrics and didn't want to, you know, waste them or just use them on one occasion. So you see these dresses being reused over and over, and there was no stigma attached to doing so. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of curious about how Paris 
has been and has remained really this epicenter of fashion for so long. I know we've done an episode on Marie Antoinette and how all of her choices kind of bled out into the public. And then we're talking obviously about the Gilded Era, but it still seems true today that these high-end fashion choices that take place are then kind of wafting out of Paris to everywhere else. It's true. Paris really was the epicenter of fashion and arguably continues to be today. And it did very much so stay that way throughout the 20th century. And digging into this research, I learned that uh, it's because fabric and silk and textiles were so central to the French economy as early as the early 18th century. And so it was such an important part of the economy that the government put forth how important it was and how and how it helped stimulate the the um, the sales of textiles and made them available, especially out of Lyon, which would um, that then feed into Paris. So it really roots back hundreds of years. Mm. Do you think that the wealthy Americans kind of coming over helped make Paris the mainstay that it was globally? Like, do you think that they kind of helped it branch out or do you think it just would have happened anyways? I do. And that's why we... When I was talking with my publisher about the title of the book, we said these women are really influencing this industry and this economy Mm -hmm. and the way that their taste diffused, how it went out into um, the world and how people took note of it was through the press. So newspapers and periodicals, magazines, um, all these forms of media, there were so many newspapers at the time, and they would report on what the women were wearing. So Mrs. McKay, all these families, the Drexels, they would entertain or go out several times per week. And there were gossip columns and social reports in all these newspapers, um, New York Tribune, um, Baltimore Sun, all these newspapers would report on what the women were wearing. And as you get into like the 1890s, then you start to get line drawings and then eventually you get photographs of them. So it's very visual and it's very tactile and hundreds of these newspapers are going out so people can see what they were wearing in that goes global. So in Paris, you have the um, the Paris version of the New York Herald, and that, you know, went out daily and really disseminated what the taste was from the U.S. women. Mm-hmm. And I think your book, just like you're talking about the newspapers being so illustrated, your book is just gripping with the pictures and the art. It's amazing. Was there like a moment that you're like, coming into work, walking through the Met, and you're like, that painting, that's what made me want to write this book. There's one painting that really started it all, and it's Madame X by John Singer Sargent, which is downstairs in our American wing. It's uh, a painting that dates to 1883 to 84, and I've spent so much time in front of that painting looking at the black slim fit dress and um, Madame Gautreaux's red hair and the very famous um, side uh, sleeve that was falling down her shoulder that got them in so much trouble at the Paris Salon in 1884. Um, but I've spent so much time in front of Madame X and her friends who are in the same gallery by um, William Merritt Chase and more by Sargent and other painters that I really started looking deeply at what they were wearing. And then the broader significance really came from there. Mm-hmm. And while you're writing the book, 
did you just kind of keep finding things that you wanted to keep in and more things to put in? And did the book ever kind of get out of control and you had to pare it down? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. I mean, I work in I work in art book publishing. So I know how crazy authors can be about wanting every single image that they've ever found to go into their book. So I would say I started with 150 images. So dresses as well as prints and paintings. And then got it down to 90, which I'm so pleased about. And Mm -hmm. I have to say how wonderful it was to work with MIT Press, who are just the most amazing publishers. And they really understood what I was trying to do visually, because in this day and age, there is no reason for us to have a book on fashion that's in black and white. It's like, no, (laughs) we need this in full color. And I really fought for full color throughout the book. Mm People, I think, are really in love with the Gilded Era and the fashion of it. It almost seems like this daydream that you're having. When people sit down to read this book, what do you want them to relate to in the pages and with the women and with their clothing? I think the women are so relatable in a way that I never expected. So standing in front of the painting, Madame X, there's really not a single not a single detail of that painting that I um, associate with myself. I mean, she's, she's tall. She's, slim, she's, you know, married to, she's a Parisian socialite at the turn of the century. Um, however, when I started reading the diaries and the letters, like really digging into like the other women that were buying and who were traveling, there's so much to relate to. And they were, I found that they were so much more pragmatic than I expected So they weren't buying on a whim. They were really making difficult, informed decisions with every purchase. And that's something I can relate to. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that we always just talk about New York, but it was really in many other places. So was there a particular woman who you learned about maybe from Philly or Baltimore or somewhere else that doesn't get a lot of attention, but who you found really inspiring? Oh, I love that. Um, so there is, um, a woman, a woman, May Golat, and we don't have very many images of her. She, um, spent time in Newport. She spent time in the Midwest. Um, but remarkably, remarkably, there are these existing invoices for all of her shopping trips to Paris for three years. So it's like 1891, 92, 93. And the only reason we have them is because she put them into a drawer in a bureau. And, you know, decades later, the bureau was donated to a certain college in Newport, Rhode Island. And when they were, you know, checking out the bureau and it was going to be this accessioned objects, this piece of furniture, they opened the drawer and they found these slips of paper, which probably no one else would be interested in except (laughs) me. And so I stumbled on them and I really feel that I can track Mary Golat's shop. She was sometimes called May or Mary to track like where she was shopping, where she was getting her clothes cleaned because cleaning was such a large issue. So there's cleaners bills. Then she goes and she buys a bulldog somewhere as a pet. And it's like, why would you buy your pet like on vacation? And then like on the shopping trip, you buy this bulldog and then you have to like transfer the bulldog back to the States, like on the steamship. Um, so that was probably not the most practical decision that I've seen in these documents, but um, there was really nothing like that. So I created like a Google map of where she 
went on these different days and it was just, you know, her favorite florist. And so I felt like I got really close to her and the decisions that she was making. It's these, these women are so remarkable. (laughs) Did you have a favorite part of the book to write or like a part that kept giving you a roadblock that you just couldn't get through? The, um, the one, the chapter that I, that I love the most and that was the most difficult to push through is the one that um, I am most proud of it is the one you had mentioned the interiors before, but how fashion interacts with interiors. So I always like had this idea that there was something about fashion, something about interior space that we needed to look at more and no one was, no one was writing about it. And I needed to sort of like theorize it and also like put it into practice and see what was really happening there and then I struck upon um and many other historians have have covered it but I found this new angle into the great Vanderbilt ball of 1883 which is this housewarming for William Kissam Vanderbilt and Alva Vanderbilt who built this mansion on Fifth Avenue and you spent a couple of years with like a star architect putting it together and then she was choosing all of the French and medieval and renaissance furnishings to put into it and then she throws this huge party in March of 1883 and she invites 1200 people we think 600 people attended dinner was at 11 dancing until two people left at dawn and there's images of that in the building in the book and also it um took place on a Monday night and to me that's just like the (laughs) height of like extravagance because no one, none of this crowd needed to work the next day. They they could party on a Monday night. They could go to the opera and then go to this mansion. And so there was this, like this envision, I can envision them walking through the spaces of the mansion and checking out the interiors um, all while wearing these very three-dimensional gowns. And I think that they really interacted in a way that, um, that I had hoped they would, and that I was able to prove in the end. Yeah. Mm. I love that you said you're able to get to these kind of diaries and letters and receipts and invoices to get to know these women a little bit more, but did you get to do any traveling? Like, did you go to any of the Vanderbilt mansions or even abroad to Paris while researching this book to get a better idea of just the space that they were in? I did. So I feel extraordinarily um, lucky to be able to just walk down Fifth Avenue from where I work and to look at all these mansions. So many of them are now gone. And so many of them have become retail stores, which is a story in and of itself. But um, I like to go to like, you know, Fifth Avenue in the East 60s where the Vanderbilt mansion was and envision it, you know, now there's, it's not such an exciting building, but just to like walk the street, you know, Fifth Avenue was very much this like straight line then as it is now, um, sort of like walk where they were. And then even more interesting to me is to walk in um, like lower, lower Manhattan to see where the American women dressmakers were working, um, like in the East 20s and in the garment district. Um, And then as far as Paris, I did go and I spent so much time in the rain, and I do, um, walking the Rue de la Paix, which is where the House of Worth was and where um, Doucet and Paquin were, and taking pictures of the buildings that they were working in because I had sort of mapped out which buildings they were each in and sort of how they may have interacted with each other. So I found through the research that the House of Worth was in this building, like six foot, a six-story building, but they didn't 
you know, use the whole thing. There was a jeweler on one floor. There was a lingerie specialist on another floor. So I stood in front of the pictures and I, I stood in front of the buildings and I took pictures of the exteriors and that really made it all come to life. I just really enjoyed how this book showed how what people choose to wear is such an expression of like not only themselves, but of society and community at the time. And I just thought that was a wonderful focus. Is that the theme you wanted people to see as they sat down to read this? Absolutely. There is a thread of community um, interaction, community values that runs through the whole book because these women were talking to one another and sharing tips. And again, in the letters and especially um, May Golette's letters as well that go with the invoices. She was recommending certain salespeople. She was telling her friends, you know, go see Madam So-and-so at, um, at Worth. She's the best. Um, you know, don't bother with this other one. And if you go to Felix, make sure you bargain them down. So they were sharing tips. They were sharing notes that really did affect the economy. And yes, as a community, they were making communal decisions. And that's also what went into the periodicals and the newspapers and circulated. Mm, I love it. And it's just such a great vision of the women who didn't have probably a lot of power at the time exerting the power that they had. I mean, you got it really affected an entire economy, which is so great. (laughs) You got it. And the men were not very involved. You know, I like to to show this image. It's in the book too, of the Felix salon, where you would go and try on the dress that was custom made for you and then have alterations. And it's just a completely like feminine space. There's (laughs) no place for men. And um, when people ask, where do you think the men were? I'm like, well, there may have been a sitting room on the first floor for them, but most likely they just weren't around. They were like at home or in an office or a club somewhere. And it was very much a women's space. And um, women were shopping alone or in pairs or in threesomes. And I do think it's a myth that women were not supposed to be out alone. There's all types of paintings and and images and photographs that show women out on the Rue de la Paix shopping, singular, like coming out of a carriage and going into a store alone. Mm. So great. Well, we've absolutely loved this and loved talking to you. Can you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your book, where they can um, follow more of the things that you do? Please do stay in touch, everyone. Um, The book is available. The book is called Dressing Up, The Women Who Influenced French Fashion. It's published by MIT Press, and it's distributed worldwide. So wherever you're listening from, please go to your local independent bookstore and pick it up there. Or you can buy it online from all your favorite indies or from the for from Amazon or bookshop.org is a terrific one that I like to support. So it's everywhere and it's also an ebook. And if you request it from your library, please tell all your friends to request it as well and take it out from the library. And then I've been posting like nonstop on Instagram. So please join me there. Um, my handle is at Elizabeth L block B L O C K. And I've been posting images, 19th century dresses from the costume Institute, which is just downstairs. And they're so exquisite. And I do feel like I've been finding things that I've never seen before. So have a look and I'll look forward to contacting everyone from there. Yeah. Oh, perfect. I love a good <laughs> dress on Instagram. <laughs> I also What's better? you just about the title and I kind of love that it's called dressing up because I feel like it's meant to be kind of like a 
throwaway kind of thing, like, oh, little girls dress up for fun, but it's kind of deadly serious sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a serious topic. Yeah. Uh And now we have this tome to really appreciate this very specific moment in fashion history. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you both. This was so much fun. Perfect. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye